Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. And I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Happy New Year's Eve. Happy final day of 2023. We have come to the end of another year. (laughs) Hope all is well out there. Hope you survive the holidays. Hope you are festive and whimsical and wistful and mournful all at the same time. That's what the end of the year tends to do to people. It's not a bad feeling. I kind of like it. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People Show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. You can subscribe to my weekly email newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com. And you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. So it has been a big year for this show, as I keep saying. More than 130 episodes, I don't know how many dozens of books. So many great conversations, and I am now going to attempt, for the first time, I believe, in the history of this podcast, a list of my favorite books of the year, a top 10. Something that I think, you know, I now realize I have not done before wisely because it was a nearly impossible task trying to sort it all out. And it was kind of miserable. I was hand-wringing for hours over this. I can't tell you how many days I sat looking at my list and trying to make decisions about what to include and what not to include because that is what you have to do when you make one of these lists. You have to draw a line somewhere. And I didn't like that because if I'm being truthful, there were 30 or 40 books that could have been on this list. There were so many great books to read this year and to have to decide the 10 best is just 
It's just, it seems crazy. And yet, I did it. And I want you to know that at some, at some point in the process, I got so frustrated that I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to do three. I'm just going to do my three favorite books of the year. And that's it. I'm going to get in. I'm going to get out. I think I know my three favorite. It seems clear, like the three books that resonated most deeply with me, the ones that I tended to recommend to other people most frequently, I sort of had that in my brain. But once you get into four through 10 and beyond, it just gets tricky. And yet, to just do three seemed like too few. I felt like I should be recognizing more authors and more books if I was going to go through with it and do this. So I ended up doing 10. But here's another layer of complication. I then had to decide, well, am I going to do five fiction and five nonfiction? Or should I separate it? Should I do 10 fiction and 10 nonfiction? Uh, how many like works of fiction did I read in 2023? It was significantly more than the number of works of nonfiction. So how did that affect the math? Do you see what I'm saying? Ultimately, I just scrapped it. I just decided to do my 10 favorite books. That's it. And what it came down to is that there were nine works of fiction and one work of nonfiction in the final list, which I suppose makes some sense considering, like I said, I read more fiction this year than I did non. And in the final list, there were eight female authors versus two men. So it's a heavily female final list, but that's just the way that it shook out. I don't know what to tell you. I did the best I could. At some point, you just have to go with your gut. You have to make some kind of, de uh, some kind of decision that I feel like is emotional more than anything else. Like I got to thinking about criteria like, what would the criteria be if I had to articulate it for the best reads of the year for me personally? And the best I can tell you is that certain books just speak to me more loudly than others. They leave a more powerful imprint or something. They resonate, right? This is, what, this is how it is for most of us, if not all of us. So I was trying to kind of almost engage with sense memory. I was trying to reflect on my experience of reading all of these books over the year and which ones really jolted me. And I came up with a list, which I am excited to share with you, but also a little nervous to share with you because I imagine there are people listening who were on the show, who are wondering if they're gonna be on the list. And please, if, if that describes you and you're not on this list, you probably could have been. It was that close. I mean, this is a, ultimately it's a stupid thing to do, but people tend to like lists. It's fun to sort of look back on the year. That's all I'm doing. So please don't cancel me, <laughs> like mute me on social media. I'm just trying to have a little fun here as we close out 2023, looking back on my year in reading and sharing with you some books that I loved and that I hope you will pick up. So having said that, I will begin with my top 10 books of 2023. First up is a story collection called Witness by Jamel Brinkley. 
Witness is comprised of 10 stories that are set amid the changing landscapes of New York City. These stories feature a wide range of characters, children, adults, elderly, you name it. An impressive depiction of so much human experience. Portraits of families and friendships and romantic relationships, all of them drawn with incredible depth and accuracy and intelligence. These stories feature characters in moments of crisis and moral quandary as they struggle to be there for one another, to speak up, to take action, to bear witness. I had such a good time talking with Jamel Brinkley. His debut story collection, A Lucky Man, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And now here he is following it up with the critically acclaimed story collection, Witness. Jamel Brinkley teaches at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Here we are in episode 856, back in August. Like a miracle cure, but this idea of, of shattering your own self-image, on the one hand, sounds scary, like, oh, that's not, why would you want to do that? That sounds terrifying. But actually, I think it's pretty useful to kind of like break your self-image sometimes, to kind of be able to, to try at least to stand back from yourself and look at yourself and break what you think you are. Because it's probably not true, first of all. It's probably a flattery. There's some kind of flattery going on there. and Or, or vice versa, or vice versa. It could be yeah, self-denigration. You know, that's you, true. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. So as much as possible to, to kind of realize that you know again this is the unreliability of the witness right you can be an unreliable witness of yourself you you can think that you are this way what actually needs to happen is that you you allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to be pliable enough that your self-image can change that you don't have to have this fixed idea of who you are because that fixed idea could be completely off Okay, that was Jamel Brinkley talking with me back in episode 856. A reminder that all of the episodes of this show are available in the feed, so if you want to hear the full talk with anybody, just go wherever you get your podcasts and search for them by name, search for them by episode number. Again, Jamel Brinkley and I in episode 856 back in August. His latest story collection is called Witness. Available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. So up next in my list of 10 favorite reads of 2023 is a work of nonfiction, the work of nonfiction in this list. It's called How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind by Clancy Martin. And what, where to even begin? This is such a remarkable book, and it's hard to imagine a better book on the subject of suicide. It's also just a riveting read. How Not to Kill Yourself is a combination of critical and philosophical inquiry and searingly honest personal history, self-investigation. Clancy Martin is a recovering alcoholic and he has survived multiple suicide attempts. He is the author of the acclaimed novel How to Sell 
and a professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri in Kansas City and also at Ashoka University in New Delhi, India. Just an amazing book and an amazing conversation about a very difficult topic that touches so many people, probably more of us than we realize. Maybe it touches everybody if you really get into it. So here I am talking with Clancy Martin in episode 825 back in March. One of the things that you write in the book that I think frames the entire book is this line, I've lived nearly all my life with two incompatible ideas in my head. I wish I were dead and I'm glad my suicides failed. Yeah, that gets to the heart of it, right? Yeah, that's at the very heart of the book. It's funny you point that out because when I initially wrote that, my editor said, well, I mean, Clancy, this makes no sense. You can't have both of those thoughts in your head at the same time. And she's obviously a much more rational person than I am because I I, I thought, you know, well, no, this makes complete sense. <laughs> this is kind of human nature and the way that we are. We're so full of contradictions and so full of, you know, deeply held incompatible beliefs. But for me, It was a state in a way with which I was already very familiar because of the way divorce with children works. You know, I've been divorced twice and married three times, and I have children with all three of my wives. And when you divorce and you have children, there's all of this regret, you know, all of this, if only I'd done this differently, if only, you know, uh, all the mistakes that you made and you look back and you think, oh, I have so many things I could have, could have done differently and done better. But then at the same time, now you've remarried and you have these new children who wouldn't exist if it weren't for the fact that you had gone through that divorce and made all of those mistakes, you know, so you can, on the one hand, look back and think, my God, I should have done so many different things differently. I was so stupid. And on the other hand, I'm so grateful that I made all of those mistakes because these new kids wouldn't exist unless I had done so. So to me, this kind of deep irrationality is very familiar and it should, probably shouldn't surprise us. I mean, I think that the the closer we in try to investigate our own belief structures, the more we're going to find all these kinds of contradictions. And it just so happens in my case that most days I am, I'm very, very happy to be alive and very, very grateful. But then also at the same time, there can come up this, this desire to just end it all, which, which I recognize as incompatible with that happiness and that gratitude. And yet that, that recognition that it's incompatible doesn't make it go away. All right. That was Clancy Martin. His book is called How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind, available now from Pantheon. So up next in this list of 10 favorite reads of 2023, is a novel called A Spell of Good Things by Ayobami Adebayo. It was nominated for the Booker Prize, and it is absolutely riveting, a story that depicts 
political and social realities in contemporary Nigeria told through the lens of two families whose destinies collide. A Spell of Good Things is a novel about wealth, power, corruption, love, gender inequality, and the bonds of family. Ayubami Adebayo was born in Lagos, Nigeria. Her debut novel, Stay With Me, has been translated into 20 languages. This was her second time on the show. Here we are talking in episode 814 back in February. And what I'm interested in is the way that this process can free a person up and maybe give them new insight into the work that was previously giving them trouble. You know what I'm saying? Like, was that the case? A spell of good things, it it seems to have maybe opened up some new avenues for you with Stay With Me? I think it definitely did. That's a really good question because with Stay With Me, one of the problems it had in the initial iterations was the structure. So I'd had this structure where we had the first half of the book from the wife's perspective. And then we go to the second half of the book and it's the husband's perspective. And I'd stayed with that for years, you know, and I just kept editing that. And by this time I started writing a spell of good things, right from the beginning, it was toggling back and forth, you know, between different perspectives. And I think that sort of informed coming back to edit, stay with me again and realizing that, the structure was one of the major problems that it had, you know, that I was trying to write two characters that the reader would be invested in, or at least, you know, maybe not like both of them, but be invested in them, even if you don't agree with the decisions they make. And I realized that with that setup, by the time you get to the husband's side of the story, you're just like, I don't want to see, hear anything this guy has to say. I'm just done with this book. I'm going to leave now. And so definitely, I, I do think that it helped me to see, stay with me and in a different way. And it opened up the possibilities in terms of the narrative structure. Okay, that was Ayobami Adebayo. Her latest novel is called A Spell of Good Things, nominated for the Booker Prize and available from Kanapf. Ayobami was also my guest in episode 485 back in October of 2017. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. (laughs) 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Up next in my list of favorite books of 2023 is the latest novel by Anne Enright. It is called The Wren, The Wren. Anne Enright is one of Ireland's most beloved and most decorated authors. She won the Man Booker Prize in 2007 for her novel, The Gathering. The Wren, The Wren is masterful. It is a novel about three generations of women who have to contend with their inheritances. Inheritances of love, of trauma, of poetry and poetic wonder, and of abandonment. This novel tells the story of a young woman named Nell McDara. She's in her early 20s. She has a complicated but loving relationship with her mother, Carmel, and she is the granddaughter of a famous Irish poet named Phil McDara. And though Nell never knew him, as she comes of age, she reads his poetry and finds that it is speaking to her in deep and unexpected ways. I should add that Phil McDara, this celebrated Irish poet, was a very complicated character. He left his wife when she was sick with cancer, abandoning his family, moving on to a new life with a new love. And The Wren the Wren is a braided narrative that brings to life three generations of McDara women. It's, I mean, you just gotta read it. It is wonderful across the board. At the sentence level, the character level, a totally absorbing and deeply moving and deeply intelligent novel about family and longing and betrayal and hope. Anne Enright is the author of seven novels, most recently a book called Actress. She has been awarded, as I mentioned, the Man Booker Prize, the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Irish Book Awards. She lives in Dublin. Here I am, talking with Anne Enright in episode 866, back in September. I'm so impressed with how like, fluid it seems, the way that I, I remained oriented throughout the text without ever feeling uh, lost, despite the fact that you're jumping from narrator to narrator, you're switching POV, you're doing a lot of mm -hmm. things that I, I think on the surface might be quote unquote, like inadvisable, like, uh oh, you know, people could get lost, but I didn't. And oh, I'd love to hear you talk about those kinds of choices, you know, working through the story, building a sense of cohesiveness, even though you're shifting POV and narrator, like the creative challenge of that. So, yes, I think that that book would have been hard to write if I'd planned to write it. But because I was following the way it was, the way it grew, I was just shepherding it somehow. It's just herding it through from page one to page 250. So, uh, or uh, um, so it has 
an improvisatory and spontaneous kind of feel in the in the early writing and then at some moment you realize where what what the book requires which is happens it's, it's just how i work on every book and then you have to structure it so okay that was ann enright her latest novel the wren the wren is available right now from ww norton and company an outstanding book Up next in my year-end list of favorite books is a novel called Daughter by Claudia Day. This book, too, is about inheritance, much like The Wren the Wren. It's about fathers and daughters and complicated family relationships. In Daughter, Claudia Day is telling the story of a young woman named Mona Dean, a playwright, an actress and the daughter of Paul Dean, a man famous for writing one great novel. He had one big hit and has been dining out on it ever since. A man of great charisma and great selfishness. And, much like the grandfather character in Anna Enright's novel, Paul Dean wounded his family through infidelity, leaving his wife and children for a new life with a new woman. And in Daughter, We meet Mona in her adult years. Her father, Paul, now remarried, once again commits adultery, (laughs) and this time he confides in Mona. He chooses her as his confidant, which both thrills her in a certain way, being lavished with attention by her father, but also it draws her into a very ugly and destructive family dynamic. This is an excellent novel, beautifully written, incredibly insightful, and so spot on about human behavior and the human condition. It is a book that is about love and creation and liberation. I love talking with Claudia Day. Her previous novel is called Heartbreaker, which was a Northern Lit and Trillium Book Award finalist. She lives in Toronto. Here we are in episode 873, back in October. I mean, that is something that feels maybe particular to men of a certain generation, that they could live an entire life off the success of one effort. This is is a question that came up for me as I worked on the book, which was just how little male writers you know, in the past have had to do to be canonized, to be worshipped, to be called masters, masters of masterworks and masterpieces, and then how much women have had to do to be seen, to be seen as equals at the writer's table, equally sublime. So yes, Paul did dine out on his novel, Daughter, which may or may not have been based on Mona and may or may not have been written mostly by his first wife, Natasha. And yes, there he is territorial. He is very possessive of his fame. He's very insecure about it. One of the kind of big themes of the book is, you know, this idea that making art is making personhood. And when your art is not entirely your own, what is then your relationship to yourself? Okay, that was Claudia Day. And her novel, One More Time, is called Daughter, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. 
You can listen to our full conversation in episode 873. So now we are at the next book in my little list of favorite reads of 2023. My next favorite book of the year is a novel called Western Lane by Chetna Maru. Western Lane is Chetna's debut, and it was a finalist for this year's Man Booker Prize. Western Lane is about grief and family and sisterhood and the sport of squash. This is one of those books that is so pristinely written, gorgeously observed. It's a novel about a family that is struggling to find its footing after the death of the mother. And principally, it is a coming-of-age story about Gopi, the 11-year-old in the family who becomes, at her father's urging, utterly absorbed in the game of squash as a way of coping with her grief. I think Western Lane is what book critics often refer to as a slender novel. It packs a lot into fewer than 200 pages. And it really stayed with me. It's a very emotional book. I found myself really loving these characters to an unusual degree, really rooting for this family and getting invested in their welfare. This is a family that is dealing with great heartbreak and just trying to make their way through. And there's a lot of love in the family. It's a great book. And it's also so unexpected when I think about it. A novel about a Gujarati family who's really into squash in England. I mean, like if you told me about this book, if you just sort of tried to break it down, I'd be like, what, squash? I, I don't, and then I picked it up and I started reading it and I was totally into it. And I felt after reading the book, I felt like I knew these people intimately. It's just a wonderful novel about grief and growing up. Chetna Maru lives in London and in addition to being a Booker Prize finalist, She was also the recipient of the Plimpton Prize back in 2022. Here we are talking in episode 815 back in February. I just wonder, I want to hear a little bit about how you edit your own work, like how you arrived at this finished product. Are you somebody who is like really slow and plotting and just sculpts each line? Or did you write it in a rush and then go back and refine? Did the input from Tom really help you make significant cuts? Do you know what I'm saying? Could you just talk about it? Because I think that especially writerly people will read your book and be impressed in the way that I am impressed and will wonder about this, like getting a book to feel this sharp. I am a plodder, I would say. I would really love to be someone who could get the whole thing down. So you've got the shape of something. Um, really fast and then spend time editing because the editing is what I love but the way that I wrote this book and quite a few of my stories is that kind of write a little bit then read the whole thing again and edit it and keep going around and round and round over and over again 
All right, there we have Chetna Maru. And her debut novel, once again, is called Western Lane, a finalist for this year's Booker Prize, available from Farrar Strauss and Giroux. So this brings us to the next book on my list, a story collection called Wednesday's Child by Eun Lee. It's a brilliant and deeply affecting story collection about loss, alienation, aging, and the strangeness of contemporary existence. Eun Lee is a writer whose work conveys real wisdom and real humility. The stories in Wednesday's Child are at turns blunt and metaphysical, scary and beautiful. Kirkus Reviews calls them, quote, quiet, beautiful accounts of journeys through hell. (laughs) And yet that's, you know, feels right. Fans of Eun's work have come to know her as an unusually clear-eyed observer of some of the more turbulent and painful aspects of human existence. Loss, illness, aging, failure, death, heartbreak. And she's just an excellent writer. The author of 10 books, including The Book of Goose, winner of the Penn Faulkner Award. Here I am talking with Eun Lee back in September in episode 863. As you go further and further along in your career, you get better at parsing that stuff or learning which thoughts to trust or when, you know, which instincts, uh, you know, are the ones to pay attention to. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, know, I know exactly what you're saying. I also think, you know, sometimes I, I don't always think of this way, but sometimes I look at all these, you know, moments of instinct. I think what you said, patience, that's the most important thing is, do you have the patience to follow up with that instinct? You know, the first layer, actually, it's not that interesting. You have to go another layer underneath. Actually, it's not that interesting either. You really have to have the patience or the time or sort of the curiosity to to follow up several steps further. And then you hit something interesting. And that is the beginning of a story rather than the very first layer, you know, that first glimpse or first impression. I do think now I know it, it feels odd to say, you know, there's no road there, but you know, there's something you can just follow and you will find the road there or the path there. So now I have a little bit more patience just following through. I, I think it's easier to have a thought. You know, we all have thoughts all the time. It's harder to think through a thought. And I think thinking through is possibly the most important thing I've learned from writing. Okay, that was Eun Lee. And once again, her latest story collection is called Wednesday's Child, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. So now we are down to the final three books. And as I was saying at the top of the show, I debated a lot about how many books to feature 
in this episode, how many books to include on my list, because it was so incredibly difficult to choose from a year of reading that included so many truly excellent books. But I can say that my top three are my top three. That isn't to diminish the other books on this list. It's just to say that like, if somebody stopped me in the street and said, give me your three books, I I would probably spit these three out. I'm human and I don't know, these books spoke to me. And they are all novels, incidentally. That's just the way it shook out when I sat down to consider my favorite reads of the year. So I'm going to begin my top three with the novel Mobility by Lydia Kiesling. Mobility is a brilliant coming-of-age story about a young girl named Bunny Glenn who, as a teenager, is living in Azerbaijan with her family. Her father works in the Foreign Service, And the novel tracks Bunny's life from adolescence all the way into middle age, following her from Baku in Azerbaijan to Athens, Greece, to Houston, Texas. And Mobility is, among other things, a political novel. It has a lot to say about the global oil trade, for example, and the corrupting forces of money and power. But what's so great about it is that, yeah, it's a political novel, in a sense, but it's also a page-turner. Above all else, Mobility is a wonderfully drawn story about a young woman coming of age and coming to terms with adulthood and family and the moral implications of our choices and of modern capitalism. I just loved it, and I loved talking with Lydia Kiesling, who is super smart and very gifted. Her debut novel is called The Golden State, and she was named a 535 honoree by the National Book Foundation back in 2018. Here I am talking with Lydia Kiesling about her latest novel, Mobility, in episode 858 back in August. Funny is she shares some things with you, but... She diverges from you in many significant ways too. Like mm-hmm. you had some fun playing around with her. It wasn't like this is this is purely like a Lydia no. character. No, she's definitely the way I have come to think of it is that we share a lot of DNA, and I'd say she, in some ways, she's kind of um, like an exorcism of myself of some of the tendencies I as I have grown older and you know there's certain like key points in life I think for you know any person where you kind of look around and have some realizations about where you fit into the world and sort of the systems that run the world for some people you know necessarily those that awareness comes much earlier than for other people but when I especially when I was looking you know writing Bunny's kind of adolescence and like mid-20s I I had a lot of myself in there just sort of like a little bit of drifting, a little bit of, you know, knowing that the world, that there were things in the world that were bad and unfair, but being sort of like, well, like I'm, you know, I just like got to get a job. And then, but yeah, sort of, I wanted, I feel very fortunate and lucky that, you know, over time I have been exposed to people and ideas 
that really challenged me and, you know, people who I really admire and sort of can look at and say, oh, that's someone who's like choosing to operate in a different way or like, look, we do have agency. We are able to kind of, I mean, not that I'm some like rabble rouser, but I do think that, yeah, the more you're exposed to new ideas, the more it does kind of shape your politics and your views and your actions. And so I, but I still... I'm very conscious of those parts of myself that were that did come up in that way as Bunny did and as a lot of I think like you know white millennial women who went to elite educational institutions like there's some very powerful currents that kind of push you along and that I really I still am figuring out how to try to kind of untangle myself from and so I wanted to write write those and kind of document them and then see see what how I would envision sort of someone like me um, who let who let the current continue to push her I guess in that direction okay that was Lydia Kiesling and once again her latest novel is called mobility available from crooked media reads this episode is brought to you by Shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So now we are down to two. The penultimate selection in my list of favorite books of 2023 is the debut novel Thirst for Salt by Madeline Lucas. Thirst for Salt is an incredible book and a hugely impressive debut. It is narrated by a woman who is looking back on a love affair that she had at age 24 with a 42-year-old man named Jude. They meet while the narrator is on holiday with her mother in a small coastal town in Australia, a fictional coastal town called Sailor's Beach. The writing in Thirst for Salt is just excellent. This is a wonderfully lyrical novel, but it never feels overdone. Madeline Lucas is able to maintain impeccable control, line after line. And there's also something really beautiful and elegiac in the writing that for me is sort of reminiscent of F. Scott Fitzgerald. There's something kind of Gatsby-ish. I don't know. That might be a cheap comparison, but that's what I was thinking as I was reading it. That's the quality of the writing in this book. It's just gorgeous. And there's also something unabashedly sexy and romantic and heartbreaking about this book. 
I couldn't put it down. It's an excellent coming-of-age story, and it is a story about a romance between two people who are nearly 20 years apart in age. But I should mention that this is not a Me Too novel. It's not a book about contemporary gender politics. It doesn't speak to that. Rather, it is a rich and deeply felt exploration of desire, family, memory, loss, and longing. It has like what I always call like a griefy energy to it. And ultimately, it's about a woman finding her way in the world. I just loved Thirst for Salt, and I loved talking with Madeline Lucas. She is a senior editor at Noon Literary Journal and a teacher at Columbia University in New York City. Here we are in episode 822, back in March. I read that you said, you know, I think that part of this book is my longing for home, my longing to inhabit these places. The entire book unfolds in Australia and in particular in this fictional coastal town of Sailor's Beach. And I was like, oh, right. Like she really misses this place. And I think that's what (laughs) makes it so vivid. And I think that's what gives it some of that griefy energy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? I totally agree. Like I do really see this novel as being charged by my own homesickness, living away from Australia for the first time. And, you know, it's just one of those things about, I don't know, the human brain or psychology. I had no interest in writing about Australia when I lived there. You know, it wasn't interesting to me because it was right there. It was in front of me. It was all that I knew. So I don't think I really understood how different or specific a place it was until I was so far removed from it. And you know, I had these realizations like, where are the bird calls in the morning? Or I don't see the same plants that I always used to see. And I think, you know, part of this is, is everyone where you grow up, you kind of think that's just the way that the world is until you really kind of get out of that space and, and see something new and, and start to realize that, yeah, each place is specific in its own way. And there were parts of writing this novel where I worried that, that distance would be unproductive. Um, you know, I really love nonfiction, essayistic writing, autofiction, you know, fiction that takes a lot from nonfiction forms. And at a certain point, I worried that I wouldn't be able to write about the landscape or the place with accuracy from such a distance. But I think, as you said, in a way, it ended up being productive because I ended up kind of sharing an emotional experience with my narrator in that she is also longing for both a place and a time in her life, as well as a person that's no longer accessible to her. So I don't know if that kind of energy of longing would have come through as clearly had I been writing this, you know, from back home in Australia. All right, that was Madeline Lucas. And her debut novel, once again, is called Thirst for Salt, available from Tin House. So... We are now down to my final selection. And like I keep saying, though it is impossible to play favorites in a real way, if I had a gun to my head and someone was saying to me, you have to choose one book that you read in 2023 and you have to call it the very best thing that you read all year long, I would choose the novel Brotherless Night by Vivi Ganeshananthan. Brotherless Night is a novel that took 20 years to write. 
So right away, it's near and dear to my heart. I love stories like this, like sagas, creative sagas. <laughs> uh, as I am a person who spent a decade on a book. But this is very, in, in a very real sense, this is Vivi Ganeshananthan's life's work, and it is absolutely riveting. Brotherless Night is a novel about a family that is fractured by the Sri Lankan Civil War. The story centers on a young girl named Sashi, the only daughter in a family of five children. She lives in Jaffna and she wants to become a doctor. And over the course of the novel, we follow Sashi and her family, her parents and her four brothers as Sri Lanka spirals into civil war in the 1980s and Sashi's family gets swept up in the escalating violence. Brotherless Night is at heart about Sashi's moral journey and political awakening. It's also about young love and unimaginable heartbreak amid civil war. This novel also functioned for me as a window into Sri Lanka and its modern history. It's a place that I've long been fascinated by, but like it was mostly an abstraction in my mind. And this novel helped to bring some clarity. It helped to bring the place and its people and its history vividly to life. Brotherless Night is just outstanding, beautifully written, expertly constructed, not a word out of place is the way that it felt to me. And I think I said at the time when the episode, my conversation with Vivi Ganeshanathan came out, that it felt like a masterpiece to me, this book did. I was so deeply impressed by it and so happy to get the chance to read it and to talk with Vivi Ganeshanathan about this novel of hers. She is also the author of a debut novel called Love Marriage, and she teaches in the MFA program at the University of Minnesota. Here I am talking with Vivi Ganeshananthan in episode 818 back in February. So can you just, like, from a writerly creative perspective, the endurance that it took you to finish this and to adjust on the fly and to accept that certain things weren't working. I would imagine you had to cut a lot of stuff and add other stuff in. And there might've been moments when you thought you were close to finishing and you actually weren't. Like, can you just talk about that? <laughs> Doesn't that happen with every book, even if you like it? it yes, yes. But I think a book like this, yeah, maybe, maybe more so, yeah. you know, to get it right. Like it, it, it is a beautifully plotted book. It is beautiful line by line. Thank you. And it just feels, to me anyway, like it just felt note perfect. And to get it a story this big into that form, I just have to believe, required a lot of patience <laughs> and in, and just like endurance. Like, can you just talk about that part of it, the changes that it underwent and maybe the emotional aspects of having to respond creatively. Definitely a lot of different things happened over this period of time. The Indian Ocean tsunami was close to the beginning of the writing of this book, and it ended up actually briefly in Love Marriage. Yeah, the Raj the Rajapaksas took power. Um, the Easter bombings happened. All sorts of shifts in the war happened. There was a ceasefire. And I mean, particularly the ending of the war, which was like a thing that I 
hadn't really been able to conceive of. Like I had like my first conscious, like I think my first memory is like of the, of something related to the war. And so like, I didn't have a idea of how my mind even worked beyond that. And it was great. It would mean on the level it was, it was great to find out. And also the way that it came to a conclusion was, um, was really brutal. So I think that. How so? Well, towards the end, and Anuka Rud Pergasam wrote a novel that is um, kind of set in this period of time. There was, after 9-11, the Rajapaksa family, and specifically Mahinda Rajapaksa, came to power in Sri Lanka, um, was elected on the strength of kind of a promise to crush the tigers. And they, they did that with like a pretty brutal military push, which towards the end of the war meant that a number of Tamil civilians were trapped between the tigers and Sri Lankan security forces. There was a no-fire zone, which was unilaterally declared by the Sri Lankan government. And then they also shelled parts of that. And Anugarud Pragasam's first novel, The Story of a Brief Marriage, is set in the no-fire zone. So like I think the the plight of those civilians, I think, was on a lot of people's minds, and specifically the diaspora people. Is this the scene in the book? I mean, I don't want to spoil too much, but this is the beach. Is that is that what you're talking about? Like the end of the war? Am I remembering? Yeah, correctly? I mean, there's there is a portion where, I mean, Sashi in 2009 is an ER physician in New York City, and the book the book starts with you knowing that, and towards the end of the book, you see her watching the end of the war from New York, and she is thinking about that space. So I think that like once the war had ended, it was impossible that the end of the war would not be in the book. But in terms of yeah, in terms of patience and endurance, like I don't know that I always exhibited that much. Well, you did, you did eno- enough to make it through twenty years, so don't don't knock yourself too much. <laughs> I mean, I think that there were a lot of people who like probably thought like, I mean, maybe it would have been smart for me to go to another project and come back to learn some of the things I needed to learn to do this. And instead, I just like really learned everything in the space of this book, like by messing up a lot, by by throwing out hundreds of pages, as you mentioned. I felt myself at the beginning of writing this book to be a writer who was bad at plot. And that was something I both wanted to work on and something I felt was necessary for the story because everyone I knew who had lived through this period, well, I was a fucking crayon with plot. Like people would be like, take that out. It's too much. Too much is happening. The pace is ridiculous. If someone had been like putting their life in workshop, you know, and that had happened to me actually, like an early, there was an early bit of this that I'd taken to workshop and all four brothers died. So spoiler, that is not what happens in this book, <laughs> but that is where actually where the four brothers came from, from that sort of line that my subconscious gave me. And like someone, I remember someone in the class sort of being like all, maybe, maybe after class in a conversation being like all four brothers die. Is that believable? And I was like, oh, shit, it is. <laughs> like, it definitely is. And I don't know. So I kind of knew that, like, I would have to, like, like my fear of plot was connected to a fear of, like, like it's cause and effect, right? And once you make a choice, like, then all of these other dominoes fall behind that. And then you're, like, maybe either in a great spot or, like, a wicked pickle. And I was, I think, for a long time, like, really afraid of plotting the book. All right, folks, there we have it. That was Vivi Ganeshananthan in episode 818. Her novel, once again, is called Brotherless Night. My favorite book of the year, if I had to pick one. So that's it for my top 10 books of 2023. 
just a great year of reading and a great year here on The Other People Show. More than 130 episodes. Grateful to everybody who listens to this program. I know that many of you have just found the show this past year. Others of you are lifers. (laughs) You've been with the show for more than a decade in some cases. And what can I say? It's a real labor of love. I appreciate you tuning in. And I am especially grateful to everybody who supports this show in the various ways that you can support this show. So that is it for 2023, another year in the books, if you can believe it. We are now in, what is it, the 13th year of the Other People Show as we move into 2024, which is certain, by the way, to be a banner year in terms of civic sanity and fellowship among Americans. Everything's going to be fine. We've got this. I know it. I don't know it, but I hope. I think that's all you can do, right? You can just hope and, you know, do stuff too, but with a hopeful energy. And I am certainly hoping for the best for everybody tuning in. I mean, I'm hoping for the best for everybody in general, but especially for people who listen to this show and wishing you a very happy new year. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. I will talk to you again in 2024. Cheers, everybody. Happy New Year.